You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. This is Dr. Corey S. Fawcett, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. This is Travis Hornsby, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. This is Kay, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Welcome to What's Up Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson from Ready Investor One. And this is Doc G from Diversify.com. So, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Well, Doc, we have a panel of three today. We have two experts in personal finance and financial independence and a listener who will be in the hot seat with the question of, please fix my finances. So let's get to know our guests. First, Dr. Corey, would you mind giving us a quick introduction, please? Yeah, I'm Dr. Corey S. Fawcett. I'm a retired general surgeon. I spent 23 years in private practice and then moved on to teach doctors uh, personal finance, uh, written a book series. My fourth book is coming out this fall. All right, Travis, same for you. Welcome back and give us a quick introduction if the audience isn't already familiar with you. I'm the founder and CEO of Student Loan Planner and we've helped uh, people with hundreds of millions of student loan debt, especially have an interest in helping people achieve financial independence despite having six figures of student loan debt. And Kay, can you give us a quick introduction and we'll just dig into your conversation. Sure. I'm Kay. I'm a preventive medicine doctor in Los Angeles, California, and where I also practice urgent care. So Kay, let's go a little bit deeper in your past. Talk to us a little bit about your education, uh, your current work and family situations. Actually, I have two undergraduate degrees. I went to medical school at the Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine. I did a year of residency at Columbia in New York, and I finished my residency at UCLA in Los Angeles. And where do you currently work? I currently work at three different places. One, urgent care in Playa Vista, California. I work at SpaceX in Hawthorne, California. This summer, I'm working a locum's job in Great Falls, Montana in urgent care. And you have a daughter, is that correct? I do. I have a three-year-old daughter. And she goes to school in Manhattan Beach where we live. So let's start with the basics. Have you ever calculated your net worth? And if so, tell us about what number you came up with and and how you did that. Sure. I have about negative 200,000 with my student loans. I calculated that by looking at my savings, my cash flow, and my debt, which is credit cards and student loans. Okay. How much savings do you have right now, just so we know? I have about 30,000. 30000 And you said your debt is both student loan and credit card. Do you know the how much for each? Yeah, I have about 200000 in student loans and I have about 20000 in credit cards. So Corey, let's talk about this a little bit. It's a pretty normal thing for a physician coming out of training to have a negative net worth. Is that true? 
Yes. Uh, today, the cost of going to medical school is so high, there's no way you could work part-time and make enough money to pay for that as you're going through. So most everybody's having to borrow their way through medical school. And they end up, because of that, with something that I coined in one of my books, diabetic neuropathy. They borrow <laughs> so much money for so long, they just become numb to the effects of debt. And debt just doesn't mean anything anymore. Whereas when you first started, that maybe that first loan hurt. Oh man, I'm borrowing how much? But by the time you get to the end of that and you're borrowing an audio, just throw some more on the pile. And so, so many doctors come out with such a large debt that the debt number itself begins to become irrelevant to them. Oh, it's just a big old debt over there. Just, it's there. It's kind of a disheartening that we lose that, that feeling that the debt hurts over time because of that. Travis, talk about that a little bit. At the Student Loan Planner, you deal with a huge number of physicians. Is their biggest financial hurdle their student loan debt? Yeah, they, they think it is, but it's actually not. It's their savings rate. So that's, so that's something that's a come, common misconception is that your student debt is the main obstacle in your life and it's not. You know, actually, if you model a bunch of different things, you know, you can have the wrong student loan strategy but have a high savings rate and retire, you know, a decade or more sooner than somebody that has the right student loan strategy but has a lower savings rate. So actually, Kay, I, I was curious about your credit card debt, the 20000 How did that accumulate? What is that from? And, and how much progress have you made paying it down, if any? So that was basically in the last, I would say, maybe two or three years. I had no credit card debt. So I went back to do another residency at UCLA in preventive medicine. And Los Angeles is expensive. I was putting the max amount into savings through UCLA because they had some good plans. But then what would happen is I wouldn't have enough to just kind of get groceries and things like that. So I would just put those little, and I'm not a huge spender, but I would just put those little things on my credit card. And then the next thing you know, I had this uh, large credit card debt. I feel like before we even jump into that conversation, we have to talk a little bit about the in case of emergency situation. I think almost before we get into career options and managing debt and savings, there's a certain number of things that each physician or, you know, certainly person and definitely parent needs to do. Kay, I want to talk to you a little bit about your insurance situation. Um, mm-hmm. What type of insurances do you have? First of all, let's start with life. Do you have life insurance? And if so, what kind? I do. I have the kind where you, I think it's called, oh gosh, there's term and there's whole. And I have the kind where you pay every month and then once you stop paying, you don't have it anymore. I forget what that's called. That would be term life insurance. I have term life insurance. How much you have? Yeah, I have a hundred thousand. I haven't been able to get more because I had a cardiac problem. So I haven't been able to get more than that. I need to revisit it. But anyway, I pay about, I think, $140 a month for about 100000 Okay. We're going to definitely talk about that. Uh, how about disability insurance? Do you have that? Uh, disability insurance through Meritas, I pay, again, around 140 a month for about 2500 a month. All right. And health insurance? Do you have health insurance? I do. I actually applied for it when I was a resident, and I'm on the state Medi-Cal insurance, which they won't take me off of. So I actually don't pay anything for health insurance. And long-term care, homeowners, car, any of those things? I have car insurance. Again, that's about 150 a month for full coverage in California, which I think is like, I can't remember. I get it confused with my malpractice. I think it's like a million. And I forgot to mention malpractice insurance. Do you have the typical 2 million per year, 1 million per occurrence type thing? I think in California, it's three in one. And I was going to start my own practice. So I have a policy in place, but I'm not paying on it yet. All right, Corey, I want you to comment a little bit on this. What do you think of those numbers? 
I think uh, those are numbers that would have been good when you were a resident. You're not a resident anymore. And let's just look at the life insurance. You, you have the right kind of insurance. You have term insurance. I also had atrial fibrillation and was able to get life insurance. So that's not a black hole that you'll never be able to overcome. You should be able to get a decent thing. And, and often it's, it's a matter of how far it's been since your last event and how the events were. But you can definitely shop that out. But you have a daughter who's three mm. and she has a long life ahead of her. And frankly, I'm not sure that if you passed away today, you're driving your car back to work today and you get hit and, and you died, $100,000 won't last very long taking care of your daughter for the rest of right. her life, getting it through college and such like that. So if you just thought about, you know, okay, I'm going to get her through the next 20 years, that $100,000 really comes down to she's going to get $5,000 a year for her to get her through college to where she will be on her own again. And, and I don't think many people would feel that that's really enough. So I think you really need to look at bumping up your life insurance to a level that would take care of your daughter in the case that you're not there anymore to do that. And along with that, you should have a will that says who would be taking care of your daughter. So you get to pick who would uh, take care of her in that event. And then, you know, they would have the money to take care of her with this life insurance. But I think definitely you got to shop around on, on that a little bit, get around your AFib, see who will work with you with that and bump that up. So if, if you went to a million dollars, now you're looking at $50,000 a year for your daughter uh, through that, that time. And that would probably do the trick for that one event. But uh, mm -hmm. you're also going to need to cover a house coming up pretty soon and potentially cover uh, a spouse in the future. So the amount uh, you're going to have to work on, how, how much do you really need? But I really think the 100000 isn't at it. I think that the other issue that kind of shocked me was the amount that you're paying for the amount you're receiving. So a hundred something dollars a month for a hundred thousand dollar term policy, even if you have some sort of severe medical condition, that seems far too high for me because we just shopped my wife and I for a term policy and we got quoted a thirty or a, a three million dollar term policy for twenty years for about I think it was eighty dollars a month, something oh, like wow. that. So three million dollars of coverage for a twenty year term you know, I have family history of cancer and, you know, things that would be risk factors, maybe not like your condition, but just the fact that you're paying that for 30 times less coverage seems to me like you bought a policy from a captive agent that got much larger commission from a particular carrier. And mm -hmm. I think that Dr. Fawcett mentioned shopping around, you know, I think it would be as simple as going to White Coat Investor and looking at some of the recommended insurance agents or going to Policy Genius or Larry Keller, Stephanie Pearson, some of these people that specialize in physicians that will be honest with you and tell you if they can't find the best policy. And then checking like a bunch of different places. And then I think that you should be able to find an adequate policy of 10 times your income for probably less than, I would guess, 200 a month, you know, that yeah. would truly cover your daughter. And the same thing for the disability policy. The disability policy seemed very, very expensive to me based off of, of what you mentioned. You're paying about 140 a month for 2,500 a month in, in protection. Mm -hmm. That's also way too low. So, you know, a big kind of caution because you have a daughter is you definitely need to drastically increase your term insurance and your disability insurance. And you also need to not go back to the person that sold you the policy because they're getting a very, very high commission for probably selling you an inferior product. Yeah, that's a emeritus. And when I purchased it, if I wanted, I think $10,000 a month, I'd have to pay around $500 a month. And that just wasn't financially feasible at the time, just coming out of residency. So that's why I kind of just tried to go with the lowest plan I could at the time. 
So Corey, is there this tendency to not want to spend money on insurance when you're looking at six-figure debt? And is that reasonable to feel that way? I think insurance is something that people put on the back burner a lot. Most of the people who come to me and say, I'd like help with my finances, don't have adequate insurance. And, and I don't know, you know what's the underlying factor, but I think we just put it on the back burner. You know, it's not going to happen to me. Everybody thinks that the insurance is for someone else. You know, it's not, I'm not going to be the one that dies, so I don't really need to, to worry about that. I'd rather have a new car right now. Or I'd rather go uh, to Florida this week than deal with the insurance. And I think a lot of people, it's a black hole to them. They, they really don't know about insurance companies and, and insurance agents and where do I go and how do I get this? And so when you're a busy doctor, you really don't seem to want to throw another thing on the pile that you're going to have to deal with. I'm going to have to go find out about this stuff. And so I think insurance often just gets pushed aside. I'll deal with that later. And they just don't get to it. And I think there's too many other things floating around in their life they'd rather do now. And so it just gets left off. Travis, should insurance be one of the first things that people consider even if they are in debt? Absolutely. I think maybe like one in four female physicians gets disabled at some point in her career. So that is far more likely than a lot of other things that could happen. And a lot of times that disability is a temporary disability. And if you're doing a locum's job, you might be uh, in a situation where you don't get good benefits or your employer is not covering adequate coverage for you, or you might be in between positions and when you get the disability and then you're not protected. So I think that outside of an emergency fund, getting adequate disability and term life insurance is probably step one and step one one B for anybody who has dependents. Okay, let's actually talk about that emergency fund. That's a perfect segue. Kay, do you have an emergency fund? And if so, how much and how did you decide on that number? I just have always saved when I worked. So that number just happens to be the amount that I saved in between my first and second residencies and then uh, what I saved when I was at UCLA, just the max amount I could save. And how much do you have as an emergency fund right now? About 30000 So, Corey, tell me about this. How do you make the decision of when an emergency fund is enough and when you can start paying off those loans and taking care of that insurance, et cetera? Like, how do you draw the line of when it's the time to build the emergency fund versus when is it time to start working on debts and other problems? Well, I think the overall look is you'd like to eventually end up with an emergency fund somewhere in the six to 12 months. But some people argue about that, that you need less. But I think the most important piece is to have enough money that you feel comfortable, that you can sleep at night. It's a little bit different number for everybody. For some people, that might be $5,000. For some people, it might be fifteen. You have 30. 30 is pretty good. That's about two months income for what you're doing. And I think at a two-month income cushion, that's probably enough to get beginning on getting rid of the debts, get rid of those student loans, get rid of that, especially that credit card debt. Credit card debt's probably killing you with interest. But I think a one to two month is a really nice cushion in the beginning of that. So you first come out of your residency, you tend to have no emergency fund. And I would build a little bit of that first. So you have something. So when something happens, like what you mentioned earlier about this would happen, I didn't have enough money, so I put it on my credit card. Mm-hmm. That, that event gets removed because the emergency fund is there. If that something happens, you don't need to go to your credit card. You can just use your emergency fund and, and take care of it. So you've, you've removed that burden from your life of having to borrow for those little things. So once you have enough money to feel like that's true, 
and I think you do in this setting, then it's time to move on to the other things. Make sure you do have retirement plan in place and you've begun doing that. You do have a debt payment plan in place and you've begun to do that. So I think having some emergency fund is important before you begin those endeavors. Travis, do physicians prematurely drain their emergency fund trying to pay off debt faster? So the thing with the emergency fund is it's more important than your student loans because it's going to have a much bigger impact on things like your credit score. For example, the $20,000 credit card debt, credit card companies love physicians, right? And so a lot of the physicians I talk to, they have the 20,000 of credit card debt, but it's all at 0% interest cards, right? Like 18 month APR, special offers and everything. So the, the interest from the credit cards is actually not what could hurt you. It's having a high utilization ratio, which could impact your credit score because say you want to go buy a house. What happens if you get an extra quarter point percentage on your mortgage interest rate or an extra half a percent or an extra 1% solely because your credit score took a hit because you were keeping this residency era credit card debt around just to have a higher cash balance, right? And so then instead of, you know, worrying about an extra two or 3,000 of credit card debt interest, maybe you've added $50,000 of interest from your mortgage over the lifetime of your mortgage because of your lower credit score. So I would actually advise you, Kay, to just use 20,000 of that 30,000 to pay yeah. off your credit card balance in full and have no credit card balance and 10000 of emergency fund. And then the next step would be to try to work that emergency fund back up to six months expenses. Yeah, this is actually a, a perfect time. I do want to jump into student loans and debt here because I think you've transitioned perfectly to this point. Tell us again about how much debt you have and what percentage you're paying. So break it down if you can. What student loans do you have? If you know the companies, let us know. And then also how much credit card debt, car debt, and what percentages you're paying on those. Do you know those offhand? Yeah, so I have uh, the 20000 in student loan debt is split amongst three companies. One used to be Great Lakes and it just switched to a new name. The other one is T-H-E and the loans are, I have about 100000 with Great Lakes. I pay about 3% interest on those loans and right now those loans have been deferred. So I pay less than $200 a month total for all of my student loans. The other student loans are about the other 100,000. They're split amongst two companies and I pay between like four and 6% on those loans. And, and once again, they're in deferral right now. All right, and then credit card debt, how much do you have and how much do you pay on it? I think I have about 20,000 in credit card debt and then I pay about $1,000 a month. Do you know so, what percentage though? What percentage oh, are you paying on that? Probably the 20s, it's okay. probably high. And then a car loan too? I do. I have a car loan through Toyota and I pay $1,000 a month on the car loan. And what percentage do you know? I think it's 6%. All right, Corey, break it down here. What should she go after first? Do you agree with what Travis said that probably the, the biggest and most important thing is to take that emergency fund and use it to pay off the credit card debt at 20 plus percent? I think that would be reasonable because she has a big emergency fund right now and it would leave her with a $10,000 emergency fund, which is a little short of a month's income. But if she's paying $1,000 a month on her credit card and she's probably getting a 1% on the money in her emergency fund and she's paying 20% to the credit card company. So she would make a huge hit financially by getting rid of that credit card and, and swapping those two where that money is. But she'd also gained $1,000 a month she's paying to her credit card now. And so that $1,000 a month would easily help replenish the money that was in her uh, emergency fund quite rapidly. And I think that would be a good plan to just take 
especially hearing that it's 20% interest now. I mean, where are you going to get that? There's no place she's going to invest her money that's going to give her a return of 20% anywhere except for paying off those credit cards. And it would remove a burden that's in her life and it would free up $1,000 a month in her cash flow. So I think that is a good idea. Travis, talk a little bit about her student loan numbers. Are those reasonable? Could she be doing things to optimize uh, what she's paying better? Sure. I actually have some questions for Kay on this. What uh, period did you borrow student loans, Kay, from your first year to your last year? Yeah, I started undergrad in 1992. Okay. And then I did another undergrad in 2001. Okay. And I started okay. med school in 2004. And then I started my integrative medicine fellowship in 2014. And then I started the preventive medicine residency at UCLA in 2016, where I added some more student loans on. So it's been many years. And the debt that you have, is it, is it all federal student loans? Like, is it all Stafford and, or do you have some private student loans in there? It's all federal. It's all federal. So based off of what you said, it's a very good likelihood that you have mostly FFEL student loans, which is an old student loan program that existed before 2007. I'm oh, sorry, right. 2000, before 2010. Uh, and mm-hmm. then you probably have some direct federal student loans, I would guess. The 6% ones are probably direct federal student loans. So you could pay on an IBR plan, but your income now that you're attending is probably going to cause that payment to be above what you would pay on a standard 10-year plan. So if you're in a deferral, my guess is you're in some sort of deferral that's existing from when you were in residency. No, it's because I have a corporation and they look at my personal income. So yes, it is because of my residency income. But even now that I work as an attending, I work part-time and they don't look at that income because they only look at the income that's tied to my social security number, which is low. They don't look at the income that's tied to my corporation for some reason. I mean, my thought on that is that's probably because they're looking at a prior year tax return, like a residency era tax return, because it takes a couple years before an attending income is reflected in an IBR plan. The other issue you're going to have is with loans spread out over multiple places, you're going to have, you have 200,000 in student loans. So, you know, if you're making, you said, I think you make about 15,000 a month, something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so they are supposed to go off of your actual tax return. Now you certainly could have a lot of write-offs, but if your tax return is reflecting an income less than 150000 of take-home of, of actual AGI, like I would be a little surprised. Would you say you, oh. you probably make over 150000 of AGI, right? No, last year I just worked part-time. So I okay. probably, I made less than that. Well, regardless, it's probably a good idea to validate all of your student loans because you're very unlikely to get any forgiveness because you're working locum tenens right now and you're working part-time. So you're not really in a qualifying employer for the public service loan forgiveness program. So when you consolidate, you basically put all of your interest rates into a kind of a meat grinder, so to speak, and they average Mm -hmm. out what the weighted average interest rate is on your loans. So your 3%, 4%, 6% loans would get all combined together and they would give you one interest rate. And that interest rate would be exactly what you have now. It would just be one interest rate reflecting everything that you have. Okay. Now, the reason why I think that that could be helpful is if you truly have a very low income on your tax returns, that you could do the revised pay-as-you-earn plan, the repay plan, and that would allow you to pay 10% of your AGI, basically, minus a deduction for your family size. So that would probably be the lowest cash flow amount that you would pay. Now, the other option would be that if you consolidated and found that your payment based on your income was very high for you, you could also do something called the standard consolidation repayment plan, which is a 30-year repayment plan. So in other words, you could put your loans on a 30-year type of, of monthly payment instead of having them in deferral or whatever you have them in now. And my main concern for your student loans right now is actually minimizing the amount you're paying 
working on them because I think there's some other things that are more important for you to tackle, specifically some of your goals around buying a house, maybe being debt-free and not having a car payment and having an adequate emergency fund and also just having adequate insurance. So I would want to see all those things done first before we have any conversations about paying down your student loans more aggressively. And I'm wondering if we can transition a little bit more to career and earning, because obviously debt is one part of the conversation, but earning and spending ends up being the rest. Kay, talk to us a little bit about what your current career plans are. If you're unsure, what are some of your thoughts that you're going to be doing in the future? What do you, what do you think you're going to be making on a monthly basis? That's a great question. I recently became board certified, which opened up a lot more doors for me. I was working as a general practitioner for many years between the first and second residency. So now that I'm boarded and in preventive medicine, I have a few different channels I can go into, one of which is non-clinical, which I'd never really explored before. So pharmaceutical companies will hire preventive medicine doctors in the pharmacovigilance department where you monitor clinical trials, you monitor side effects. You can make twice what practitioner was making in the past. That requires that I invest more money in my education. So that's the question that I have. Do I want to invest in this year-long program through Berkeley online program, but that would give me the you know $8,000 investment to give me a $200,000 bump up in my salary, let's say. Go to work for Allergan or Genentech or one of these large companies. So that's something I can pursue. That's a huge leap of faith. Again, but that's okay. I've built my career around leaps of faith. That's the first thing I can do. The second thing I can do is go to work for a federally qualified health center as a general practitioner, a medical director, making maybe 200000 The pharmaceutical company, you can make anywhere from three to 400 And with stock, you can make more than that. Federally qualified health center, I'd make about 200000 and they would pay off about $50,000 in student loans a year. So that is a potential avenue that I have not yet pursued. Just trying to think of the next best thing to do. And then I used to work in occupational medicine and those jobs are plentiful, but they're kind of brutal. You work 40 hours a week, which was more like 50 hours a week. And you see 30, 40 patients a day. It's not particularly rewarding. And for that, I'd make maybe 220, maybe 250. But that's my background. That's my experience. And that's my fallback. I have been working urgent care. I uh, worked the urgent care in Playa Vista. I only work a few days a week just because I'm doing taking care of my daughter the rest of the time. But she's getting to an age now where I don't have to spend as much time with on her with her so I can go look. I can look for another clinical job. I really don't want to do another clinical job, even though it would be financially rewarding, just because of the time and attention that it takes and the, the commitment the lack of flexibility, there's a lot of problems with that, just being a single parent. So I could go back to full-time urgent care. I think right now I make somewhere between 250 and 300. But, you know, if she's sick, if there's a problem, there's a doctor's appointment, there's not just not a lot of flexibility in that. So those are the, the different avenues. I guess there's four different avenues I can take. The income to me is all kind of around the same. And then you never know what's going to happen in life. So taking that risk is what's holding me back. You know, I don't have someone to support me in case one of these careers stumble. So pharma sounds the best to me. I would like to do that not just because of the income, but because of the work, how it's non-clinical. But once again, it's a whole other investment. Unless you have training from a pharmaceutical company or you've done a fellowship, pharma fellowship for preventive medicine doctors, they typically don't want to hire you and train you in a field where they're paying you a lot of money. They want you to know what you're doing. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. 
Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up to date first party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, service key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. Okay, I was going to ask you, which one of these would be most important to you? Basically, working fewer hours so you'd have more time to spend with your daughter, living in a really like a nice house, like achieving that goal of home ownership in, I'm assuming, Southern California, or having the option to you know not have to work forever? So right this second, my daughter is always a priority. So she's the, the North Star. So taking care of her, spending time with her, making sure that she's you know, developing properly as well as healthy. Those are the things that are important to me. That's why I'm working two days a week and making $120,000 a year. So your question was, what is the most important? Yes. Yes. Like, you know, time with family, like family priorities, right? Like homeownership or not, not having to work forever. Yeah. In this exact moment until she's five, when I hear kids get considerably easier time with family, only in that I'm the person who has to take her to the doctor and things like that. Or if there's an emergency, I have to be there. After she turns five, homeownership obviously is the most important. And so that's the trade-off that I have right now. Just for now, I'm going to be at home with her. And in two years, I'm going to go back to work full time. And then not having to work forever. I actually love working. I enjoy working. Retiring is not something that I actually want to do. I spend my time exactly the way I want already. So I'm perfectly fulfilled in that area, if that makes sense. I just need to get the finances corrected. And once the finances are corrected, then... But that's not something that I see as it needs to happen right this very second. Just because when I was in residency... This is kind of a long-winded answer, but when I was in residency, I worked at UCLA during the week, and then on the weekends, I worked both days, if not one, sometimes two days in the urgent care. So I worked seven days a week for about two years. So I didn't really see her, spend time with her, do anything in regards to her development. I drove her to daycare 
I picked her up, I gave her dinner, I put her to bed. So this past year has been about, you know, all those things that you neglected during that time, teaching her how to read, teaching her how to swim, you know. So those are my priorities right this very second. But eventually, yes, I would like to buy her a house. I would like to pay for her college. You can't do that working two days a week in Southern California. Yeah, that was what I was going to ask is your home ownership goal. Is that in Southern California or have you considered it elsewhere? You know, her dad lives in Newport Beach and I never thought he was going to let us move, but he agreed to this locums job in Montana for the summer, which is great because it's saving me a ton of money on rent and it's saving me a ton of money on childcare. So I'm saving about $10,000 total just being here for two months. So Corey, I want you to chime in on this a little bit. I have to admit when Kay was talking about a career option, which included more education and possibly more loans and paying for more education, I kind of caught my breath for a second because it almost (laughs) looks like she's done that already. As you listen to Kay's interests, what she wants to accomplish in the next few years, and you listen to her options, does anything stick out to you? I'm concerned that you really, Kay, don't know what you want to do. And that's why so many different fellowship pieces have have come in there. In each of these things, what I would say about those choices that you just listed Mm -hmm. is they all make good money. So the money is going to be enough no matter what you pick. So the question is, which one of those things for you to do for the next 20 years will make you the most happy? And I think you want to look at that thing. So one of those things you mentioned, you said, oh, that one's kind of brutal. You're thinking kind of brutal before you even get there. That one's mm-hmm. off the table mm-hmm. because, you know, you're, you're going to be a couple of years down the road having made that decision and finding out that that was the wrong decision because you were already saying some bad things about it before you got there. So whatever one of those you pick, you'll do okay financially. Will you do okay mentally? Because you're going to do it for a long time or you're going to have to kick back into what they were just saying about, oh, you're going to go back to some more training and do something else. Mm-hmm. I would say figure out which one of those things really means the most to you and in the long run, not just in the next two years, but in the long run in your life, because you're going to do this for a long time, you're going to make a lot of money from it. You know, $200,000 a year for uh, 20 years is $4 million, is a you know, $4 million decision that you're making. Pick the one that five years from now, you're going to say, boy, I'm glad I did this. And mm-hmm. I think that would be the most important factor because you'll make plenty of money with each of those choices. Well, okay, I, I was just going to say, like, here's just my guess, just based off of some of the things we've heard. I actually think that the FQHC or the a VA kind of job would be very mm-hmm. appealing over the next couple of years. I think mm. we're in a point in the economic cycle where things are just very overheated. We've had the longest period since a recession since the 1850s, which kind of tells you mm. that you know we might be due for you know a recession and biotech and pharmaceutical companies tend to get hit really hard when there's recessions. So potentially you could do one of those jobs and it would work out great right? And you'd make the money that you're thinking about making. But California is a place where your marginal tax rate and additional earnings is going to be probably in the neighborhood of 50%, you know, if you're making that kind of money as a single person. So, you know, you're not making as much money as you think you are for taking a pretty big risk that's not going to have as much flexibility probably. And some of the happiest physicians I talk to are people that work in systems like the VA because it's, you know, full-time is like 30 2.5 2.5 hours a week in some cases. Right. So that's my thought would be for the next couple of years at least, take one of those kind of jobs that will give you, you know, 50,000 a year of student loan repayment that maybe has a 30 hour kind of 
requirement for full time and enjoy your time with your daughter, accomplish a lot of these financial goals to make yourself more stable, get a large, you know, emergency fund going, all these things that we're talking about. And the good news about Southern California is knock on wood, if there's no major earthquake, houses in Southern California are not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're going to be able to buy one, you know, five years from now and the housing prices are already very high. So if they stay very high, then you're just going to be buying at, you know, this already high level. And if mm-hmm. we have a recession and you're locked into a really safe job, then housing prices will likely go down or not increase as much. And you will, you know, not have to fight a bunch of other physicians to get access to a very safe job when everybody values safety suddenly because we go into a negative economic cycle. So that would be my thought is, you know, you, you do probably work out imagining 20 hours a week, maybe mm-hmm. right now. So for an extra 10 hours a week, you get full-time benefits, student loan repayment. The actual value of your money that you're earning per hour is probably super, super high with one of those kind of jobs. So that's kind of the way I'm leaning. That's a really good point. Yeah. So going back to what Dr. Fawcett said, which is, I don't really know what I want to do. When I first started out in medicine in 2001, I said I wanted to be an integrative medicine doctor. So cut to two decades later, when I finally am an integrative medicine doctor, I'm looking at my options saying, wow, I can be an integrative medicine doctor or I can use this preventive medicine degree and make more money. So that's just what, one of the things that just resonated for me when he said that. The other thing was that I have been the medical director of an occupational medicine clinic before. It's what I did before this preventive medicine residency. So that's how I know that that's not something that would particularly make me happy. And to what you're saying, I think you're right. The VA where I worked when I was in my residency at UCLA is a great place to work. And I have recently contacted the medical officer and, you know, to see if there's any positions there. But I can also look at the Long Beach location. So that's actually a really good point. I didn't know the VA offered loan repayment, though. They do in some cases, like especially if it's a a position they really want to recruit. A lot of times the VA will literally just make up a student loan repayment benefit and they'll just say, we're going to give you this amount, you know, and it's not necessarily like an FQHC benefit, but it'll be just an additional thing that they'll offer in in terms of your contract. And the reason why that might be helpful is because you you only have about 200,000 of student loans. You're probably not going to get a public service loan forgiveness benefit. If you did take a VA job, you probably would want to pay your loans back on the revised pay as you earn program after having done that student loan consolidation. And if in case you did hang out at the VA for 10 years, you could potentially get that benefit. But Mm -hmm. if you you didn't, if you negotiated some sort of student loan repayment benefit with your VA job, then you could, you know, at least have a smaller balance that you'd be dealing with. It's interesting when you said, I didn't know they had a loan repayment program. Everybody has a loan repayment program. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of how hungry they are for getting you to come work for them. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, the, the notion that everything's negotiable. If mm. they really need you, they will come up with more to get you to choose them. And right now, when we sit in general in a doctor shortage. So in general, doctors have more leverage that way. There are pockets where, okay, we have plenty of these doctors here. So, you know, we're not going to offer you extra stuff. But if, if you're going to look at something where they really need you, they can do lots of things. And you can really see that in credentialing. They can tell you, oh, it's going to take us, you know, six months to get you credentialed. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, if they really needed you bad next week, they could have you on staff and credentialed next week. It's a matter of how bad they need you right now. So keep that in mind whenever you're looking at something. If you want loan repayment and they seem like they need you, ask for it. Mm-hmm. Even if they're not bringing it up. 
is if they really need you, they're going to do whatever it takes to get you there. Because once they get you there, they make a lot of money off of you. Doctors are worth a lot of money <laughs> to the healthcare system. So they need you in the system. And so they're willing to pay some upfront money to get you there. So keep that in mind wherever you're going. There's nobody that doesn't have a loan repayment system. If they want you bad enough, they'll get it. The one problem though is Long Beach doesn't have a doctor shortage problem, right? Southern California doesn't really have a doctor shortage problem, at least in most specialties, right? Like, so, so one thing that's just fascinating to me is I will have like, let's say a urologist, right? That person will make maybe 250000 to 300000 working for UCLA in Southern California. And you have, you know, a two bedroom house costs a million dollars, right? And, you know, you have all these issues and the taxes are super high, you know, so, so at the same time, that same urologist in like Knoxville, Tennessee, like one example would make 500000 to $600,000 and mm-hmm. there's no state income tax and a five bedroom house is like $500,000. Mm-hmm. You know? So that's one thing to think about is if you do want to re- have the freedom to potentially retire at 60 or something like that and do the homeownership goals, pay for your daughter's education, you know, living in a place like you're working now is going to get you there a lot easier. And if you don't mind working till 70 and you really want to live in Southern California, I think that's totally fine. But just realize that, you know, all these goals will be more difficult and will require more hours of your life to achieve if you do decide to live in Southern California long term. Your own life depicts what Travis is talking about. You're working in Montana because those guys needed you. Mm-hmm. You're not working in those times down in the LA area because they, they've got plenty. But that mm-hmm. guy up in Montana, that hospital is hurting and they're reaching out for doctors and you're flying all the way to Montana to help mm-hmm. these guys out. So they're paying extra. They're paying through the nose to get you to come there. So there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a perfect example just in your life. You could go to Montana and get a job right now and they're probably going to give you some boosts to get you there that you're not going to have offered in the LA area. And you might think about this geographic arbitrage where doctors do way better financially in some pockets in the country than they do in others. The one you're living in is one of the toughest ones, super high cost of living area. Everybody wants to live in Southern California. The weather is great. The beach is there. So if if you're going to go there, hey, everyone else is going there too. So it becomes supply and demand. It's harder to get what you're after. But this place in Montana that you're working, they have a beautiful place to live too and they need help. So you might think about that if your ex-husband has allowed you to travel with your daughter, maybe there's a better place to live in your life financially, a place where you can work part-time and still make plenty of money because Mm -hmm. the costs are so much lower there. Maybe there's a better place in the country to live Maybe that's not something you have been thinking about. Well, no, I I used to live in Alaska. I lived in Alaska the last month before med school, or last month of med school. And I would love to go back there, to be honest. What's preventing that? I just didn't think he was going to let us go, to be honest. So now the wheels are turning. I think this is actually a perfect time to start talking about spending. So you're talking about GR arbitrage. We know that you can do only a certain amount about your loans. We know that Basically, you need to find a job that makes you happy as well as provides economically. But spending is something you can uniquely control. Let's talk, Kay, a little bit about what you spend on. We know the big three, right? Those are food, transportation, and housing. What are you paying, I think, monthly right now on food? What do you spend? I mean, not that much, like maybe 400. We don't really go out to eat very much. And then on housing, I know right now you're doing a locums, but your normal housing in California, what are you usually spending? It was 2,600 for a two bedroom. 2,600. And then currently you have a vehicle which you're paying on at the moment? Correct. So So do you know how much of your budget is you spend a month on transportation? Yeah, that's a thousand a month. 
A thousand a month. And then debt service, how much do you pay on debt service roughly? You mean my credit card? Your credit card, we said, is a thousand a month. And About a thousand. Okay. All right. So, Corey, what do you think of those numbers? Well, the one thing that really jumps out is the high car expense. One of the things that I see happen so many times to new physicians, and it happened to me when I got my first residency and I've got now a job, I've got income, I didn't have it in medical school. And I said to myself, oh man, now I can afford a new car. And what I really meant was now I can afford a car payment. And I went shopping and I looked for Mercedes. I don't know why, but Mercedes just jumped into my mind. I had to have a new Mercedes. And I was looking at these cars, and when I closed the door, it's, oh, it sounded so good compared to the car I was driving. And the salesman said, okay, so should we do this? And I said, well, you know, let me think about it. So I go home and think about it, and I realized how much I could have done with the money I was about to spend on this car. And I ended up not doing it. I bought a similar car. It was a Ford Taurus program car. So it was a year old instead of the Mercedes at one third the price, a very similar car, very similar kind of transportation. But we get so caught up in now I have cash flow. There's a paycheck coming in. Now I'm rich is what it feels like because you just jumped from nothing to this, this big number. And so many young doctors go out and they buy an expensive car. And yet, when you think about your net worth, you're negative 200,000. The guy going down at the food bank is better off than you financially. Mm -hmm. Uh, His net worth is zero. He's $200,000 ahead of you. (laughs) Uh, And so when you think about that, we don't tend, when we first come out, to think about our net worth as our financial position. We think about our paycheck as our financial position. And we see this paycheck jump and we think we can spend all this money. But if we would think more in terms of our net worth, I've counseled people that go on these lavish vacations and I say, well, you know, you vacation like you're a millionaire, but you're not even up to zero. And so it puts it in a whole new light. So I'm a little concerned that, you know, $1,000 a month is a lot uh, for a car. And that's just the beginning. That's just the payment. That's not the gas. That's not the insurance. That's not. Mm -hmm. So a huge portion of your budget is your car. The housing, it's expensive where you live. You know, no matter what you do, you're going to have to pay Mm -hmm. a lot of money. The interesting thing is, is that you don't have one at all down there. So you'll have to move again into something. But eventually you're going to want to buy a house. And so when I look at these things, I think you don't have a budget, right? You don't keep a budget. Is that correct? No, I I mean, I do. But like, as far as what? Like tracking and making decisions of where all the money is going. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, I do. So this is the point in your life where a budget is really good. So there's times where having a budget is just kind of extra work. And there are times when having a budget is really important. And one of the times where it's really important is when you want to do something financially or you had a big financial change. And so what you're trying to do with your budget is put everything on paper so you make sure your money goes where you want it. To go. You're talking about wanting to have uh, money for your, your daughter's college education, you know, wanting to have the right insurances, uh, wanting to buy a, a house in the future. And so you want to make sure that your money is actually heading towards those goals so that you will achieve them. If you put together a budget, you can actually point your money in the direction you want to go, and then you'll get started towards those things. If you don't have a budget, you will tend to say, oh, I make all this money. What can I spend it on? 
this month, then spending choices get out of hand because you start buying stuff and then the things you really needed that you weren't thinking of, you know, they come up and then you end up sticking it on a credit card because Mm -hmm. you needed it. But if you had had the budget, you would have realized, oh yeah, that's coming up. I need to be ready for this. And so you're at a particular point in your life where I think sitting down and working out a good budget to get all the pieces in you want is a really good thing to do. I'm going to play devil's advocate here a little bit though and say, okay, I think that there's a way that you could avoid needing one. And I think that that's just go ahead and and just moving to Alaska and just doing that. (laughs) I mean, I actually think that that would solve most everything about what you want in life in terms of hitting all of your goals like that you've mentioned. I think that there's almost a certainty that you'd get $50,000 per year for student loan repayment moving up there. And I think your take-home pay would go up anywhere from 50% to 100% if you adjust for cost of living uh, and also lower income taxes and just the fact that Alaska is one of the highest paying states for physicians in the country. Uh, and also, I don't know, you know, personal life goals, but, you know, if you ever did want to get remarried, there's a fantastic male to female ratio in Alaska. <laughs> Uh, so there's that too, right? Uh, so some to think about. And then home ownership is also probably a lot easier there than California. And there's also this in Alaska, there's all kinds of these not-for-profit federal government employers of physicians. Like there's the Native American sort of tribal health sure. system up there. You know, there's the VA system. There's just all these systems that have a really tough time recruiting physicians. So I think that would be really important. And then on the budget side of things, what you could do is, is simply do this. Limit your housing costs to no more than two times your income. So when you buy a house, if you just try to limit that purchase price to less than two times your income, you'll be fine on housing. You know, you won't have to worry about that being too much of a percentage of your budget. In Southern California, that's almost impossible unless you're living in like a one bedroom shack, right? Right. But in in Alaska, I think you could buy something pretty nice for that. And then for the car thing, my understanding was you bought the Toyota Highlander because you were concerned about protecting your most valuable asset, which is your daughter from, you know, a driver not paying attention and rear-ending you, right? Is that fair? Right. So I looked up rear-end crash ratings and what you're driving is okay, but there's actually stuff that's better that would also be better for your finances. So for example, Subarus and Volvo uh, sedans test better for rear-end collisions than Highlanders do. And I went on Craigslist in Southern California just to see what was out there. You can buy a 2012 to 2014 that's got the very top rating for rear-end crash ratings for anywhere from five to $10,000. And, you know, if you basically got rid of your Toyota, either by paying off the loan really aggressively or just, you know, basically going to like a place and just trading it in for a worse car and having no car payment that way, Mm. that I think would relieve a lot of pressure on your finances too. I think that would be really great to get no car payment by driving something that's very safe and reliable, like a 2014 used car that you pay cash like 10 grand for it, something that has the very top crash ratings. So that would be kind of a suggestion is (laughs) start looking for jobs in Alaska, maybe hire a family law attorney to potentially negotiate with your ex-husband to to get the okay to do that. And then just to take, because it seems like to me, maybe you're in Montana because you wanted kind of a reset. You wanted something adventurous, something a little different versus just kind of not doing something like this. I mean, is that fair? I'm just thinking you're probably looking for a change, something different. And I think Alaska would give that to you and it would also solve a lot of these issues in your life. So, So that would be kind of what I would do is just if you could basically eliminate your car payment and then follow that two times your income rule for housing, I actually don't think you need a budget. I think you can't physically go out to eat too much because your liver would fail. No, (laughs) that's that's what I tell people. So if you control the housing and the car expenses, I think, and you also get the student loan repayment, I think everything else is just going to work itself out. 
Before we wrap this up, I think that we cannot end this discussion without talking a little bit about asset protection. For those of us out there who are not physicians, physicians have to worry about medical liability and medical liability can spread not only to malpractice insurance, but can also spread to our personal assets. So I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on this, but Corey, a few thoughts on asset protection for Kay? You're way more into asset protection than me. I don't think it's as big a deal as some people put it out to be. And the reason being is because of we also carry malpractice insurance. And it's pretty rare to get sued beyond your limits. And not that they sue you for beyond it, but that you end up getting settled for beyond your limits because the lawyers want to get paid. And so I think the biggest asset protection that you need is to be sure you've got adequate insurance. And for a doctor, that means medical malpractice insurance. And there are some things that you can do to improve your asset protection outside of that. And they're all state dependent. Every state has some different asset protection rules. What can people go after? Which accounts can they go after? Can they go after your house? Can they go after stuff that's owned with you and your spouse? And you've already been through a a divorce. Uh, That's another really big asset protection thing is to make sure your marriage uh, lasts because those are huge, huge financial hit when a couple separates. But asset protection, I'm not super into. So I'll defer to you on what are going to be best for asset protection. I would bounce that to Travis. Any thoughts, Travis, on asset protection? Well, sure. I mean, California does have one big plus for it compared to Alaska. And that's if you live in California, you probably won't have any assets to protect. So expensive, you know, you'll be good to have anything left over, you know, for somebody to come after. Uh, And in Alaska, you know, you'd have this luxurious problem of of worrying about that. You know, I think that there's honestly like when, when you have no assets, big whoop, right? Like personally think you have to worry about asset protection. Like if somebody sues you, you know, forward them an email with your net worth and say, good luck, smiley face. You know, I mean, (laughs) leave you alone and just call your malpractice, you know, carrier and negotiate a settlement with them and leave you alone because there's nothing there. And, and, you know, in a place like in Alaska or in Minnesota or a lot of these places that are out of the way places, the malpractice protections for doctors are like ironclad because they want to attract people so badly that they put all these protections for people that, you know, can't really get sued at all. So that's something that, that I would certainly think about is if you want to have assets to protect, move, move somewhere else. And, uh, you know, if you don't mind working for a long time and having a more challenging life financially, but living in Southern California, then, then stay where you are. But it seems to me that you want to take a risk for at least the next couple of years of your life. Yeah, until she's not starting, you know, public school or private school or whatever we're going to do for a long time for two years. So we can take this time and travel and then, you know, come back to our friends and family when it's financially more secure situation. I didn't know Alaska paid. I know it paid a little bit more for doctors, but I didn't know it paid twice as much for doctors. So Alaska is way out of the way. And so they really got to, you know, draw you to there. And if you're already saying, boy, I'd like to live in Alaska. That's almost a no-brainer. I mean, if <laughs> if you think you'd like to live there and they oh, yeah. want you there, I mean, that's going to be a match made in heaven because their hunger for people, it's a long ways out in Alaska. And so because of that, they have to draw people to Alaska. And if you already want to go, man, that's a big plus. Oh, yeah. It's gorgeous out there. It's so beautiful. It's actually warmer than Montana in the winter. So, Kay, I've got a question for you. Based on all of this feedback, you've gotten a lot of advice in a very mm-hmm. short amount of time. And sure. I think we've challenged every kind of default decision you've made thus far. What do you think of this? And was this helpful? It's super helpful. I think that each person brought such great quality material to the conversation. It's just a matter of listening to this again and then taking the actions in those areas. 
it was really helpful. And what do you think is your one big takeaway from this that you're like, okay, that I've really got it and I'm going to make this change? Does anything come to mind? I think valuing the student loan repayment because I've never valued that. I've never really, because the offer is always there and I've just never really valued that. But to hear it from other people, how valuable that is, it makes a big difference. Yeah, shopping the field. I think what you bring to the table as a bargaining chip has a lot of power, maybe not necessarily in Southern California in the same way that you no. would other places, <laughs> but there are options, right? So I think shopping around for your insurances and paying off the credit card debt will put you in a really good place. So I'm really thankful for you for being willing to share your personal story like this. This is not sure. easy. And somebody who is listening to this right now got a big aha as well because you were willing to share. So thank you so much. So what I'll do here is we'll close this out and I'll have each of you just let us know where to find you and let us know what is up next for you in your life. So we'll start with uh, Dr. Corey. What's going on in your life and where can we find you? Well, I, I can be found at drcoreysfawcett.com where I run a blog. A couple of articles uh, come out uh, a week. And my current project is I have a book coming out this fall. It'll be number four. The prior three have all become Amazon bestsellers. And the fourth book in the series is The Doctor's Guide to Real Estate Investing for Busy Professionals. And so watch for that. If, you, if you've ever thought you wanted to get into real estate, but you didn't feel you knew what you needed to do or feel that you could because you're just too busy as a doctor. Hey, I ran 65 rental units that I owned and I was the manager as a full-time general surgeon and I'm going to show you how to do it. So that's my, my current project coming out this fall. That's incredible. Looking forward to hearing from that. And also thank you for joining us and helping us with uh, Kay's Fix My Finances hot seat. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for inviting me. It sure was. Thanks for being on here. Travis, how about you? What's happened in your world and where can we find you? studentloanplanner.com is where you can find us and you can reach out to any of our team at help at studentloanplanner.com. You know, we have a big, kind of a growing business. It's not just me anymore. There's several other consultants that help people make plans for six figures of student loan debt. So, you know, if you have a lot of student loan debt and you're kind of curious about what to do with it all and how it relates to your life, that's what we specialize in. And then in terms of what's going on right now, golly, you know, we, we have a student loan planner podcast that we've been working on and that's a lot of fun. We are constantly working on publishing a lot of things. We're getting ready to do a scholarship program for people who are in school. So that's that's a big project of ours to try to give back approximately 1% of the revenue of the company to people that are currently dealing with things like credit card debt and all these things that, you know, someone like Kay went through. So that's, that's the big things like business-wise. Personally, we're, my wife and I are getting ready to take a big trip to Korea. So that'll be really exciting. Uh, you know, summer vacation season, right? So, uh, so that's, that's, that's about it right now. Well, thanks again for coming out here and we'll turn back to Kay. And any last thoughts? And if anybody wants to get a hold of you and just give you some encouragement or advice, where can they get a hold of you? They can contact me on my email, which is my first and last name, khushman, uh, gmail com. I'll just spell it for everybody. It's K-A-Y-H-O-O-S-H-M-A-N-D at gmail.com. And I'd, I'd welcome all and any advice. All right. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we'd like to thank Dr. Corey Fawcett, Travis Hornsby, and Kay. Thank you for being on the hot seat. If you would like to get updates on what Doc and I are thinking up next, you can text the word NEXT to 345-345 so you can get notified of free giveaways, opportunities to engage with the What's Up Next podcast, and maybe even be a guest on the podcast. We're adding consistent content to our Facebook group, and you can get access by texting the word NEXT to the number 345-345. That's a wrap.
You know, if you can pull off Alaska, that will be a <laughs> huge life changer. Uh, you should go to Alaska. I love it. I love it that that's what the takeaway, Travis. That's priceless. <laughs> Don't take out a snowmobile loan, though. Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> so I Don't grew up cash. on a farm. It's actually warmer than Montana in the winter. Everybody's warmer than Montana in the yeah, winter. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.